tuning in to episode 145 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues, all from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchbar, Director of Marketing here at the seminary. Thank you for tuning in. Well, I have the pleasure today and for the next few episodes to sit down with Dr. Alan Strange, Professor of Apologetics and Church History here at Mid-America Reformed Seminary. And we're going to be talking about the early church, beginning with the Apostolic Fathers. Dr. Strange, thank you very much for joining me behind the mic today. It's good to be here as always, Jared, with you and all of our wonderful listeners. We thank you for your support and prayers always for us. So, Dr. Strange, we're going to be exploring the Apostolic Fathers in this episode. Can you just describe briefly who they are and what their significance is? Of course, we're talking about the Apostolic Fathers in the early church. Take it away. Yeah, that might be a bit of a different sort of nomenclature or title for many of our listeners. Uh, Who are these Apostolic Fathers? You might be thinking, uh, what's their relationship to the Apostles? Well, We're all familiar with the apostles uh, as we see them particularly throughout the New Testament, the book of Acts, and John is generally taken to be the last of the writing apostles. We all know his great uh, book, The Revelation of St. John the Divine, there on Patmos. What happens, though, after he dies, and in the 90s or around 100 A.D., That's where we are. When we're talking about church history, let me just say this. Sometimes people will ask me something about something from Nehemiah, and they'll say, well, you're a church historian. Or they'll ask me something from the book of Acts, and they'll say, you're a church historian. And I say, "Uh, I am. And let me just take the opportunity to say that church history, as we call it, actually begins after the death of the last writing apostle. So it begins at the time of the apostolic fathers. If you want to know something about Nehemiah, that's the Old Testament department. If you want to know something about Acts, that's the New Testament department. It is the case then that church history proper begins with these people called the apostolic fathers. And uh, there are people like Clement of Rome. He is uh, reckoned as by the Roman Catholics as the third successor uh, to Peter as the Bishop of Rome. Now, all of this is pretty debatable about Peter being there in Rome. We don't know these things, but we do know that Clement, from what he writes, probably knew some of the apostles, and he has one particular work attributed to him, the first epistle of Clement. That's to the Corinthians. We, of course, know Paul had some epistles to the Corinthians, one or two of which aren't in the Bible. Others are. And Clement had this work to the Corinthians, and it's the earliest post-biblical piece of literature that we have in its entirety. Hmm. So it's really important in that way. And that particular epistle addresses various problems, uh, particularly differences that have arisen between some of the younger men and some of the elders. Uh, Some things don't change. We still have some (laughs) of the same sorts of problems. And then there's a work called Second Clement that used to be thought for centuries to be something Clement wrote, but it's been fairly clearly seen to be rather something dating from around 150. And its its importance continues, though we don't think Clement wrote it. Uh, we're not, we don't know who wrote it. 
It is the earliest sermon uh, that we have probably in its entirety. And if you if you look at it uh, as a sermon, I have a, uh, a copy of it uh, here somewhere on my desk. Uh, if you look at it as a sermon, you'll see that it, it it has some interesting things. It talks about election. It talks about how much we need Christ, uh, how helpless we are. Uh, but it also speaks in some ways that do make you wonder whether they've read what Paul has to say about grace. Mm. Uh, and it sounds rather legalistic at right. some points. Legalistic is not saying what God requires. That's just proper to to preach what God requires and how we can't fulfill it and how Christ fulfills it, but how we in gratitude seek to walk with him and bring forth those fruits of obedience. Legalism, what I mean by that is um, something added to the word of God or something that makes it sound as if there's some merit on our part. So at any rate, you you see some deficiency there of expression in Second Clement. What were some of the other writings uh, from the Apostolic Fathers, and how do they stand up against Scripture? I'm thinking particularly of some, you know, the Didache, Fragments of Papias, for example, Shepherd of Hermas. Maybe just elaborate on on a few of those if you can. Right. Well, before I talk about those, I have to say Ignatius, because he's Mm. one of my favorites. Ignatius of Antioch uh, died as a martyr in 117 under Trajan. Uh, and of course, he's from Antioch. So we have these epistles that he writes on his way to Rome for martyrdom. Mm-hmm. He writes these epistles to the Ephesians, the Magnesians, the Tralians, the Romans, the Philadelphians, the Smyrnians, and to Polycarp. Let me just say Polycarp, just to jump into him for a moment. Polycarp uh, is a rather remarkable figure. He probably lived to about 100. He died in 160. Oh, wow. um, he was quite old. He knew the apostle John. So he's going to become a very important uh, sort of link because Polycarp knew John and was a kind of, uh, of you could say, a disciple of John. Uh, and then one of his disciples is going to be Irenaeus, who we'll talk about later. So there's an important link you can see there in the early church. He was martyred in 160 under Antonius Pius. And of course, the story of his martyrdom, the martyrdom of Polycarp shows you both I would say his courage and his faith, but also it reports it in a way that shows that the early church was beginning to fall into a kind of um, a kind of adoration, if you will, of the saints and the martyrs. It says, for example, when he was burning, that you could not smell his flesh, but baking bread. Hmm. Uh, all of these <laughs> these kinds of miracles that were supposed to be happening. But uh, back a little bit to 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 talk about what you were talking about. I think you mentioned Papias. Uh, He was also someone who knew John the Apostle. And his work, Exposition of the Oracles of Our Lord, contains a very clear statement on the canonicity of the book of Mark, noting that Mark is based on Peter's recounting. So the idea is he got that from there. And and many scholars uh, speak about what they call a Markan priority, meaning that Uh, Matthew and Luke both used Mark. They looked at Mark, but they have additional materials in them that are not found in Mark. In fact, that's what some people call Q. If any of our listeners are familiar with that, we're not talking about a Star Trek character, but we're talking about Quella, the German Quella, 
uh, the Q source. I won't say more about that. It is interesting that Papias uh, held to a kind of premillennialism or mm. what we would call Chiliasm, or it looks like Chiliasm, yep. but Chiliasm. And you could understand that many of those in the early church thought that the Lord would return soon. Sure. And so they had this kind of view, not what we would call, not the dispensationalist right. premillennialism, yep. but a kind of historic, historic premillennialism. premillennialism. And the Shepherd of Hermas is a rather odd book. Uh, it's a, a revelation given by an old woman and a shepherd. <laughs> and um, it does speak of Christ and the Holy Spirit, both uh, being divine. But it's sort of, it's almost as if they're taken together because Christ is closely identified with the Holy Spirit. We know that 1 Corinthians 15.45b says uh, that he became a living spirit. And there's a very close association uh, in the mission, particularly after Pentecost. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's obviously then a clear distinction. And Basil of Caesarea and others will go on to make sure that the the integrity of the person of the Holy Spirit uh, is better understood. The Didache is quite an important work. I think you mentioned that. That's the teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles through the 12 apostles. That was discovered around 1873 in a a monastery library in Constantinople. And it's basically in two main parts. The first part uh, is ethical instructions. um, And and it speaks of the way of life and the way of death. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, this is the path to follow. You can think of sort of like Psalm 1. Here's the right way to walk and here's what you should avoid. And then the second part is a sort of church manual talking about baptism, talking about the Lord's Supper. It's probably written, I said it was discovered in 1873, it was probably written in Syria, somewhere in that area, 100 to 150. A lot of these things, we have a a rather wide range of when they would have been written. Yeah, and just to be clear, Didache is Greek for teaching. That's right. Now, you mentioned Ignatius. He had a rather... Very deep spiritual devotion to Christ and a very enthusiastic, peculiar longing to sacrifice his life for Christ's sake. Can you flesh that out? What, where he was coming from? Why was he so passionate about even uh, encouraging others in the church to right. to 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 back off? Don't prevent my martyrdom. What? what yeah, you- that that's a that's a fascinating question. I mentioned those letters that he wrote on his way to Rome, uh, and the, the the fourth one of those letters is a letter to the Romans themselves. So he was writing to people in Ephesus and other places, Philadelphia, um, not in Pennsylvania, but in the ancient <laughs> world. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, the middle letter there is to the Romans, and in that letter he makes a plea there for the Christians not to intervene on his behalf and thereby hinder his martyrdom. Um, And that raises a number of issues. One interesting issue that I could raise before we talk about what you asked is um, what does the possibility of the plea of Christians hindering his martyrdom suggest in terms of their possible influence? Uh, For many, many years it was taught, well, the appeal of the gospel in the earliest church was to the poor. Uh, We've since significantly revised our view of that. Uh, People like Wayne Meeks in his book on the first urban Christians, uh, Rodney Stark in his Rise of Christianity, Ben Witherington, who has done a lot of uh, work, socio-rhetorical work, 
has emphasized that there was a a kind of middle class and even upper class to whom this appeal was made. So presumably there were members in Caesar's household. We know that Paul had an influence there Mm -hmm. uh, who were Christians. And so he wouldn't say to Christians if Christians had no no sort of influence whatsoever. They were all simply lower class. He wouldn't say, don't try to stop my martyrdom. Now, some think that he means don't try to stop it by violent revolution. Mm. That would be part of it. But I think that clearly part of the way he speaks about it is they would have had other ways to do it than that. But but this is the question of why was he so seeming to embrace martyrdom? I mean, we understand if you if this comes and you have to it has to happen. That's one thing. But he seems to have a what comes to be called a come sweet death sort of mentality. And you find this in the early church. There comes to be a premium placed on martyrdom. Mm. Uh, and it's seen to be the high road to heaven, as it were. And of course, martyr, the word means witness. Right. Which is interesting that the ultimate witness was seen to be death uh, and giving oneself Uh, to death. And in these letters, though, we get a number of other things doctrinally. Ignatius clearly affirmed the divinity and humanity of Christ uh, and the unity of all Christians in a spiritual and governmental sense. He's maybe the first to distinguish bishop and elders. There's a lot going on that's worth reading uh, these writings for him. But one thing I think that's really striking is he opposes Gnosticism. And one of the things of Gnosticism was it taught that Jesus just seemed or appeared to be a man. It was a heresy called Docetism, right. that Christ didn't really have a full manhood, but he just simply appeared to. And what makes what point that makes is in the early church, they weren't really confused about whether Jesus was God. Mm-hmm. They were clear that he was God. Now, liberals in recent centuries talk about Jesus as a man, as a great man, and not as God. But in the earliest church, they really got that he was God. They struggled to see how was one who was God, as was Jesus, also man. Mm -hmm. But I think that's very instructive for us. Maybe I could just say to end something about the characteristic of all of this writing. I think you ask about that already as well. What was the characteristic of this writing that this that we've been talking about? Clement of Rome and Ignatius and Polycarp and Shepherd of Hermas, Papias, the Didache itself. What was it over against the New Testament canon? Does it sound mm-hmm. the same? In other words, you go from Revelation right into this material. This is the first material. Yep. I would say this, though this is the most immediate writing that we have, the difference, I think, between that and the New Testament canon is striking. This material is often prolex. It's very wordy. It's labored. It's pedantic. It's didactic in a way that that the New Testament material doesn't have that. It has a different feel, I guess you could say. Uh, It lacks the freshness and vitality, I think, the real spiritual power that the New Testament canon possesses. And noticeably, uh, notably absent, I think, is the all of grace theme sure. that's so prominent in Paul. And one work that highlights this, uh, it was his dissertation some years ago, is that of T.B. Torrance, uh, who wrote The Doctrine of Grace in the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, and I don't, uh, excuse me, I said T.B., I mean T.F. Um, I don't agree with everything Torrance says in this work, of course, Um, But he does point out some interesting things. And one of the sentences 
uh, in his conclusion is, the gospel carries with it an eternal indicative, but post-apostolic Christianity labored only under an imperative. Mm. And so you, the, 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 all the indicative that you get in the gospels and in Paul's writing especially uh, is somewhat absent in this writing we're talking about of these apostolic fathers. They tend to very much emphasize uh, not so much what has been done, but what we must do. Sure, sure. Much to learn from these men in the early church, the Apostolic Fathers. Dr. Strange, thank you for elaborating just a little bit on that piece of history for us. Next time, we're going to be looking at Justin Martyr, one of the famous apologists in the early church, and a very fascinating church theologian by the name of Origen. Tune in next time for that. For more episodes, you can find us at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.